This is episode 189 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cells and Synthetic Biology, Dr. Prashanu Saab. Hey everyone, we are Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Do you want to stay even more up to date with the latest stem cell podcast news? Then you should follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Stem Cell Podcast and be the first to know about upcoming guests. Today we have Dr. Krishanu Saha, who's utilizing quantitative and bioengineering methods to advance the next generation of cell and gene therapies. Krishanu is joining us from the University of Wisconsin-Madison to talk about his work. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's big news this episode. That's coming right up. Big news indeed. Lots and lots to talk about. It's going to be a fun roundup. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about ESC and IPS News, one of the free weekly newsletters from Stem Cell Science News. ESC and IPSC News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in ESC and IPSC research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. So save time and keep current with ESC and IPSC News. Subscribe for free at www.escellnews.com. You know, Arun, I can speak for probably most developmental biologists when I say the reason you get into the business at all is because you're fascinated by the processes that lead to the formation and, and you know, organization of tissues and organs. Um, but, you know, the whole, all the tools that we've developed over the decades, over century now, uh, of studying development, mammalian development in particular, we haven't really been able to crack this black box. You know, everything happens post-implantation in the uterus. It's very difficult to observe. There's been a lot of culture techniques that have been proposed and developed, you know, approaching a century now. Since the 1930s, there have been culturing embryos in like static conditions. Also, more recently, the rotating bottles on a drum, so-called roller culture systems, also on circulator systems. The platforms are not really efficient, though. Uh, they don't lead to robust embryo survival and, and you limit it to very brief windows. You know, the, the embryos in these systems start to display developmental abnormalities as early as 24 hours after initiation of culture. OK, so that leads us to this, I mean, truly remarkable and revolutionary work that was led by Jacob Hanna at the Weitzman. I should also mention, though, this was a group effort. A lot of lead investigators on this, Alejandro Aguilera, Castellon, um, Noah Noverstern, Italy Maza, Rara Masarwa. I got a lot of names there. I messed up a few of them. I'm sorry. All right. But they all, you know, their efforts culminated in this truly mind-blowing work uh, that you've probably read about at this point because it's been on all the outlets. They used this roller culture system, but they hyped it up a little bit, um, integrated with customized in-house developed electronic gas regulation that allowed precise control not only of the oxygen and CO2 levels, but, and this is the key, it, it allowed control of atmospheric pressure, okay? And this is key because pressure uh, has been shown to enhance oxygen delivery to tissues um, and that's the that's the the limiting factor here, right? Is that if the tissues aren't oxygenated, everything goes wrong. Um, this story is nuts. I mean, you got to just have a look at the at the pictures to to recognize what they achieved here. They in the first wave, they started at around E eight point five post gastrula and carried it 
three, four days to, you know, E11, where you have full organogenesis, the heart is beating and all the, all the uh, organ primordia are there. Uh, and then even pushed it back to E5.5, showing that you could essentially take a perigastrula embryo through Semitic stages and out again to E11 and beyond. Um, and only limited by the fact that at that point they, they need like uh, vascular perfusion. Not being hooked up to maternal blood supply leads to the demise of these embryos. But they're so well formed at that point that you can imagine there may be some other bridge to get beyond. And also just to tack on there, they within that system they showed, and this is where it's a revolution for experimental approaches to developmental biology, is that they could intervene. They put in, they electroporated some GFP in there, they added lenti in there, taking the embryos out of the roller culture, doing this perturbation and putting it back in, showing they could continue to develop. Even injecting... Um, pluripotent stem cells into these embryos and putting them back into the roller culture, showing that they could contribute to functional tissues. So this is nuts. Um, it's a big deal because, like I said, the black box that is implantation early organogenesis has been kind of cracked open. And, you know, we're going to cover another story uh, later in the show uh, about uh, pre-implantation stages. And then the next idea, obviously, would be how far can you go back before 5.5? And, um, Jacob Hanna very aggressively in an interview with New York Times said that he's already doing it. He said he took a uh, fertilized uh, oocyte zygote from the oviduct. So this is like, you know, zygote, one cell stage from the oviduct of the mouse and, and said they're having success in carrying it through their roller culture system up to the equivalent stages, E11. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, fertilization through organogenesis here in the mouse um, and, you know, it'll be a long time before we even attempt anything like this in human. But nevertheless, having an experimental platform where you can observe and perturb uh, mammalian development through these critical uh, stages is going to be a real, it is, it's a watershed in developmental biology. And, and I think uh, Jacob Hanna is going to have a lot of collaborations on his hands moving forward. Collaborations and definitely some ethical concerns and issues. I mean, that's inevitable with this kind of work. Uh, Dr. Hanna was one of the earliest guests on the podcast, and we'll <laughs> try to have him back to talk about this unbelievable, truly revolutionary work. I would say probably the paper of the year so far, uh, maybe even paper of the, the decade, who knows. But you're right. I mean, it's, it's just, if a picture says a thousand words, a video says a billion, right? And there's videos of little mouse embryos with beating hearts that are growing in these roller, um, roller, you know, uh, apparatuses. And, uh, that, that says a lot, you know, the fact that you can get these things to survive long-term, the only limitation, as you mentioned, is the oxygen oxygenation. So if they're able to overcome that hurdle, who knows how long you can, you can take these things. And, Really, it's inevitable. I mean, if you can do this in mouse, certainly this is applicable to human embryos as well. And the ISSCR, I think, is getting ahead of some of this work. There's this golden 14-day rule, right, when it comes to human embryo development and the the timeline at which you can study it and the, the point at which you can't uh, take in vitro cultures beyond, right? But they're starting to reconsider that. They're starting to reconsider that 14-day rule in part because of technologies like this. Uh, the 
14-day rule was, I think, applicable because we weren't able to grow embryos for that long. It just technically wasn't possible. But thanks to work from Dr. Hannah and also the other blastocyst papers that we're going to talk about, it technically may be feasible now. So hmm. the ISSCR is thinking about reconsidering it, and I think for good reason. Yes, good reason. But, you know, I just want to address briefly that, you know, you come out with a story like this and everybody wants to talk about, forget the uterus, you know, or, oh, no, now there's going to be human embryos that are cultured to the point of, you know, neural development and it's ethical slippery slope. And yeah, that's all obvious, guys. I mean, nobody, I think, is going to be in the short term trying to, to bypass the uterus. Um, for any kind of practical consideration. But as, as Arun, you were alluding to there, that the early days, you know, these pr critical prim primary events in neural specification, also, you know, things that may relate to implantation failure and IVF, these are all now uh, open to investigation. We're not trying to make babies in a roller culture here. What we're trying to do is understand things that we couldn't even see. Um, so I think everybody needs to stay on point. This is a big news story because of all the potential controversy, but come on. I mean, I don't even think we'll be doing primate stuff. The scale, the size of the embryo and the time that it takes and the limits of, uh, you know, vascular supply, I think are going to make that impractical. But we're going to get a lot of insight into the early days uh, post-implantation. Well, Daylon, I know you're super excited about this work, as everyone should be. You know, you're going to talk about another two amazing developmental biology stories. All three of these stories uh, from the June Wu Lab, from Jose Polo, from Jake Pano, all dropped simultaneously in nature. But before we get to those two blastocyst-centric stories, I'm going to talk about a Hans Kleber story, a former guest on the podcast, which also has received quite a bit of publicity recently. We're talking about crying human tear organoids in a dish. So organoids that can actually cry in a dish. So we're talking about the lacrimal gland. It's essential for the lubrication and protection of the eye. And when you disrupt the fluid production in the lacrimal gland, then uh, you can get a number of different disorders of the eye. The most famous is dry eye, right? So it can it's discomfort, you know, cause damage. It's it's not a fun thing. So and there's a lot of approaches to to lubricate the eye that have been developed over the years, right? So here at the Cleavers Lab and first author here is Marie Bagnier Helloe. Sorry for the mispronunciation there, Dr. Marie. So the Cleavers Lab here developed lacrimal gland organoids. Long-term 3D lacrimal organoids in both mouse and human. So they're isolated primary lacrimal gland tissues from mouse and human, expanded them over multiple, multiple months, and then you know, showed that they're functional. They actually have the morphological and transcriptional features that you would actually find in the true lacrimal ducts. They're able to do some CRISPR-Cas9 editing to show that if you knock out the PAX6 gene, which is the master regulator of the eye development, uh, you're not going to get great lacrimal gland development either, so that makes sense to me. And of course, they had to do some single cell to compare the real lacrimal gland with these organoids, and they're able to show that a lot of the same cells are there, um, developed another single cell atlas. And finally, the, you know, the real 
attraction to the story and the reason why this is developed and you know gotten a lot of press is they showed that yes indeed these organoids can cry quote unquote cry in a dish i mean you know depends on your definition of crying really what they did was treat them with some norepinephrine and able to show that these little organoids they start to puff up and you know puff up with some tears so nothing like crying that like you would in response to like a, a sad movie, like watching The Lion King or whatever, right? But if you throw some norepinephrine onto these organoids, you're able to respond appropriately and shed some tears. So it's it's fun to talk about, and it has applications because you could use it to study the pathophysiology of the lacrimal gland, and maybe down the road have some treatment to develop for dry eye. But yes, the, the next time I watch The Lion King, I'm going to have some of these organoids sitting next to me, <laughs> and I'll see if they respond in the same way that I do daylong. The Lion King, is, is that? I thought it was uh, inspirational. I, Dude, I, it's it's got a little bit of everything. But, you know, <laughs> the, the traumatic part as a kid oh, yeah, that was, is you tough. know, when Mufasa yeah, dies. Oh, now tough. that's just... Oh, Mufasa. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Well, look, man, I, I, I love Hans. And I, I love any organoid, you know, get get some more organoids on the menu. I thought we had them all, but apparently not. Um, I, I do think that this is important. I'm not aware of the the, the relative scope of um, pathology in, in the lacrimal glands in humans. I'm sure it's real, though. So applause. But I, I just want to say, you know, in terms of like the... <laughs> I'd be if I read a story about you know organoids thinking or or are weeping, I would be more sympathetic to the weeping organoids. Okay, so we should talk about the ethics of that. Why are we making these organoids cry? Okay, we should be a little bit more nicer in the lab. <laughs> so that's it, Arun. I don't even have a serious comment for this. My apologies, but I mean it's cool. I will say that anytime you can get anything to cry, you should think twice. But it's it's no less cool for it. Leave the organoids alone, man. They have a tough enough life as it is. Now we have to make them cry too, right? It's fun to talk about. And, you know, part of the reason that stem cell papers these days are getting such publicity is because in some ways we're personifying these things, maybe yeah. unnecessarily, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, but it if it helps, you know, get the science across to the general public and draw attention, then maybe it's a good thing too. Bring the Kleenex. Anyway, <laughs> this is the second and third uh, chapter in this big drop from nature here. I think no coincidence that all three of these papers came out in the same day. It's kind of drawing a line. Um, this is about the blastoids. Again, you probably have already read about this, guys, but we got to cover it. Uh, you know, we actually had Nicholas Rivron on the, on the show a while back, a couple of years ago, when he first came out with this mouse blastoid story from stem cells they've they've been generated from mice these blastoids blastocyst like structures not only him subsequent stories also did it uh, and they can even model pre and peri implantation processes in vitro so it's a powerful tool but the question is can we do it with human right of course now that we're on that slope we're sliding um, and two groups have uh, shown that we can I want to start and focus on Jun Wu also in collaboration with Gary Han, who, who led the story that I'm primarily going to cover because I think it's representative. And uh, also Jun Wu was on the show. So I'm a little Fairweather fan there. 
Um, what they did is they used, this is uh, Jun Moon Gary Hahn at UT Southwestern, they used naive human ESL, so a human ESL line that was cultured in 5ILA medium um, to generate, you know, to maintain this naive pluripotent state. Uh, and then they exposed them to human trophoblast stem cell medium to make trophoblast uh, like cells. They also exposed them to this other Wnt uh, and TGF beta enriched medium to uh, drive hypoblast lineage, right? Um, with FGF and TGF beta ligand active in A and shear, your, your favorite, Arun, shear 99021 uh, as a Wnt activator. Um, and what they showed effectively is that they, if they generated the trophoblast separately and they could do the hyperblast separately and there were always some epiblast-like stem cells in there hanging around, right? So you had the, all the components of a blastocyst. And then when they tricked it out and did this sequential differentiation um, with uh, a little bit of the 5i re uh, residual um, in there, they were able to get all three cell types together. And then when they cultured them in this 3D agrowell plates, um, and did the sequential treatment, they were able to get uh, blastocyst-like structures that had an inner cell mass and the trophectoderm, et cetera. Uh, and then they went on to show that if you compared uh, a normal blast to the um, you know, blastoid by single cell, they were effectively identical. They also showed that you could generate um, stem cell lines from them, both trophoblasts and and you know, pluripotent ES cell lines from these cells and showed that they could undergo some uh, in vitro, they could undergo some uh, develop into these like peri-implantation-like structures, okay? Peri-implantation-like structures like the ones that Hannah showed he could get to late organogenesis stage. Wow! Um, so, you know, it's a big story, making these blastocysts from cells in vitro. And then as a little mechanism in there, they showed... Uh, the Wu group showed that the, these, these, these isozymes of protein kinase C that are important for forming the blastoid cavity, which I think was just like a little, they appended that maybe to satisfy the uh, reviewers there who were looking for mechanism. But I mean, just making a blastocyst in vitro alone from cells is enough for me. Uh, and that's similar to what the, uh, another group did led by Jose Polo, who's at Monash University. The only difference there being that they used oxim from dermal fibroblasts, so they induced pluripotency, got them into a naive state, and it was a little bit more, I would say, random in that case. They found that then when they did the oxim, they got all the lineages there anyway, just during the reprogramming process, and so that when they put all the that collection of cells into an agrowell, they similarly developed blastoids, and they could derive stem cells from them, and they uh, formed these kind of peri-implantation structures as well. So, I, I mean, these are, are um, parallel studies, I think, that have some, you know, nuanced differences, namely coming from a bona fide naive ESL line versus skin. Um, you might argue that the skin is more impressive, uh, also the more, you know, I guess, impactful. We're talking about taking uh, someone's skin and making it into an embryo that has all the hallmarks of a natural embryo. Pretty twisted when you think about it. Not twisted in a bad way, but we're talking about cloning people. So um, it's amazing. And uh, I think that this coupled with the Hannah paper 
is really setting a bunch of developmental biologists on their heels now, just like brainstorming about all the things they can do now that they could never do before. And more than that, I think it's got a lot more people thinking about all the things that we might do that we shouldn't. So there's a lot here to unpack, but you know, bottom line, this is a big week for developmental biologists. This is a huge week for the developmental biology community and the stem cell community as a whole. Three titanic nature stories dropping at the same time. We've had Jacob Hanna on the show. We've had Jun Wu. And perhaps we'll try to get Jose Polo to talk about some of this work as well. I want to bring it back to that 14-day rule. And, you know, I got an email from the ISSCR the other day telling me that, yes, we are thinking about reworking that. And every single country around the world has their own limitations and their own restrictions on how far you can actually take some of this type of work. But again, part of that had to do with the fact that technically it was not possible to study human development beyond, say, 14 days. And this is work, all three papers here are combining to show you can look at pre-implantation, you can look at post-implantation, you can grow these things, who knows how long. So the only questions remaining are, one, how long is it going to take before, say, some of the HANA work starts transitioning into human embryos? And two, again, bringing it back to the regulation, can we develop some sort of international-based regulation of this work. And I think the ISSCR has been the de facto regulating body for a lot of this work, um, since it's hard to get consensus across different governments for human em embryo and developmental work. So whatever the ISSCR says goes in a lot of ways. And if they decide to rework and rethink that 14-day rule, then Pandora's box is going to stay open and it's going to be open for a long time. Yeah. This is, I mean, you can't, you can't ignore the ethics, right? And to me, I'm a lot more, well, I'm not like afraid or disturbed or anything. I don't want to overstate it. But if I had to guess which of the, the two, you know, the Hannah versus the Blastoise things was, was more low-hanging fruit for some rogue investigator, I would say the Blastoise. You know, you need a lot of sophistication to get the roller culture. But even if you did, I don't think it would work with human. I think that there's fundamental limitations that you could get in scale. Versus these blastoids, what's to stop some rogue IVF doc from making an oxim cocktail and this and agrowells and then implanting some blastocysts? Well, I, I will say that in the previous work that's been done in blastoids with mice, that implant transplanting them, I mean, putting them into the uterus and, and implant implantation, you don't get, you know, an ordered embryo. You're not going to get a live pup out of there yet. But... Um, I, I mean, I just have to say again how amazingly faithful these blastocysts look to the real thing. And I'm not saying that they might work where the mouse didn't, but I, I still think that there's there's it's lower hanging fruit in terms of who I mean, which is which is going to be tried first, uh, developing, you know, human peri implantation embryos on roller culture or implanting. A blast, or probably they're going to get some blastoids and then put them into the roller culture. I mean, we'll probably see that next week. But um, all of it <laughs> is a real twist. I mean, we gotta, we really gotta, all of us, be um, responsible. And uh, I'm looking to the regulatory bodies, as you say, Arun, to give us some guidance here. Absolutely, and congrats again to the Polo, Hannah, and Wu Labs for this tremendous work. 
And shifting gears to the last set of papers that we're going to talk about in the roundup, uh, also coming from former podcast guests, Todd McDevitt and James Hudson, also down there in Australia. We got to talk about the heart. You know, one segment of the roundup's got to be about the heart since, you know me, I love the heart. And this is actually following up on some work that I did actually last year showing that IPS cardiomyocytes can be infected by coronavirus. We're at the tail end, hopefully, of the coronavirus pandemic. But there's a couple of big papers that have come out from the McDevitt lab and the Hudson lab that are really modeling cardiac infection by the coronavirus in a dish. So we're talking about direct infection versus indirect infection. The McDevitt lab was more focused on looking at whether IPS cardiomyocytes can serve as a good model system to serve uh, to study direct cardiac infection by the coronavirus. And most importantly, they're able to bring it back to patient tissues and also show that indeed some of these isolated patient samples have coronavirus inside of them. So this is a science translational medicine paper titled SARS-CoV-2 Infection of Human IPSC Cardiac Cells Reflects the Cytopathic Features in the Hearts of Patients with COVID-19. A lot of co-first authors on this paper, Juan Perez Bermejo, Sarah Kang, Sarah Rockwood, Camille Simoneau, and again, uh, shared last authorship from Todd McDevitt and Bruce Conklin on Melanie Ott from there at the Gladstone Institutes. So it's a it's relatively straightforward, again, showing that IPS cardiomyocytes are susceptible to infection. But the crazy thing is that their phenotype, the cardiomyocyte phenotype in response to the viral infection is, is quite striking. You get these disruption and destruction of these sarcomeres that are important for the contraction of the myocyte. And, you know, you might think, okay, that's an artifact of the IPS cardiomyocyte system. They're immature anyways. But they show that the similar phenotype can actually happen in patients, this destruction of the sarcomere component. And maybe, maybe that's why a lot of folks are having some cardiac issues in coronavirus infection and COVID-19. So that's talking about direct infection. And the other paper that's coming from the Hudson lab is talking about the immune and inflammation induced effects caused by SARS-CoV-2 infection in the heart. So the title of this paper is BET inhibition blocks inflammation induced cardiac dysfunction and SARS-CoV-2 infection. So what they did here is they showed that it's perhaps the indirect effect that's the stronger effect, right? So they're actually identifying this inflammatory cytokine storm, a cocktail of interferon gamma, interleukins, uh, that is inducing diastolic resting dysfunction in the heart. And importantly, they found that this bromodomain containing protein 4 is actually activated with the viral response using their really cool cardiac quote-unquote organoid system. It's not really a developmental cardiac organoid, but it's their version of a cardiac organoid. And importantly, hearts of SARS-CoV-2 infected mice. Okay, So they found that these BET-I inhibitors, so bromodomain inhibitors, can fully recover the dysfunction both in the cardiac organoids and also prevent the dysfunction in the mouse system. So it's showing that this BET inhibitor could be a really useful methodology and a useful approach to prevent COVID-19-induced cardiac damage. And that's part of the reason why this is a cell paper, I think. So, you know, not to, not to, you know, be a broken record here, but 
uh, I like the heart and I like stories about COVID-19. And this is, these are probably the two is high, high, these are the two highest profile papers uh, that are intersecting the two fields. And it's telling us something more about cardiac damage in the context of COVID-19, whether it's indirect or direct. I think the consensus now is that it's a little bit of both. I can't lie. I will be pleased when there, there are less COVID papers out there. But this isn't that, I would say. I think that this is kind of the, the, the segue between the COVID papers that have been ubiquitous and the COVID papers that we're going to see moving forward. Okay, and, and what I mean is that there's like the papers that were like, what's, what's the entry point? What's this? What's that? And then this intermediary is like, what is all these, the COVID, the poorly understood sequelae of COVID? How is that working? Okay. But I will say, and this isn't a criticism of the story, it's just time, you know, things stay in review. I'm sure Hudson's already moved on to the next thing as well as McDevitt. But the, the thing here that I'm, that I'm not concerned about, it's just a reality, is that we're on the tail end of the COVID thing. I wonder how important it's going to be to understand the way that the, the COVID actual particle, the disease, uh, mediates the sequelae. I think that now the next thing, and the NIH is leaning into this hard, is the, um, the long COVID stuff, you know? I wonder how much of this story may also be relevant to that latent or that chronic, you know, in, is there a chronic inflammatory state that in the long COVID that's similar to this? Or is this really just in the acute phase directly in response to the active viral particles in there? I mean, that, that's a question I'm sure they're already looking into. But, but as I started to say, I, I want to see this next phase of the COVID stories because that's, I think, where we're really struggling. You know, we have a, a huge percentage, relatively very high, as many as one in 10 people uh, that contract COVID that have long COVID. And these are people that are, you know, mild or even asymptomatic cases. And then six months later, they're still dealing with it. So uh, I think we need to, to crack that and not like it's easy. Hey, I'm not going to even try. But uh, I'm looking to the next stories from labs like Hudson and McDevitt to see what's going on there with the long COVID and if it's related at all to the acute phase. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there's a connection. And like you said, there's a huge interest at the NIH to, to study long COVID because, you know, millions and millions of people have developed COVID-19. And like you said, a large fraction of them, a relatively large fraction of them have this long occurring brain fog and various other fatigue symptoms associated with long COVID. And hey, maybe there is a cardiac connection here. If say the McDevitt lab is able to show that um, some of these sarcomeric phenotypes are maintained long term, then maybe that's contributing to that long COVID phenotype. Hmm. Yeah, if it's only reversible, God willing. Well, you know, that was a tour de force. This is a big week in science. We're about to get to a big interview with a guy who's really leading the charge in engineering. You know, he's trying to apply CRISPR towards the next wave of therapies and cells. Um, so we're going to give you a message here from Stem Cell Technologies talking about something similar. Stem Cell conducted a survey asking scientists to help highlight the hurdles to genome editing using CRISPR. You should read the survey report to learn about the most interesting insights on topics such as editing efficiency, downstream viability, and how to overcome them in your research. Visit www.stemcell.com slash CRISPR survey results to learn more. And now on to our interview with the king of CRISPR, 
Krishanu Saha. All right, today we have with us the special pleasure of joining Krishanu Saha, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at University of Wisconsin-Madison, also co-leader of the NIH Somatic Cell Genome Consortium. The Saha Lab is interested in using human stem cells together with emerging engineering methods in material science and synthetic biology to make smarter therapeutics, model human disease, and advance personalized medicine. Krishanu, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Saha. And a fun fact for our listeners, you and I are actually both stem cell biologists hailing from the rocket city of Huntsville, Alabama. But enough about ancient history. Let's talk about what you're working now. So your lab is focused on synthetic biology and engineering a new generation of cell and gene therapies. So synthetic biology is a little bit of a buzzword these days. And when I think of synthetic biology, I think of cells making proteins and other products that they're not supposed to make. There's a famous example of, say, bacteria making spider silk, right? But tell us about your definition of synthetic biology and how your lab is using synthetic bio to make stem cells even more useful and more powerful. Synthetic biology for me is... Um developed from a training at graduate school. So I was trained at UC Berkeley and they had a um, National Science Foundation grant that developed a center on synthetic biology. To me, it's about moving genetic circuits into human cells or uh, that's the slice of synthetic biology that we're very interested in. And I think the original type of vision for synthetic biology is that you would have really Lego-like circuits that could be plugged in to one another to build up more complex behaviors. And also, ultimately, the designer has control because they're controlling all the building blocks. Um, I, I think in stem cell biology, particularly mammalian stem cell biology, it's taken a bit longer to um, develop some of the toolkits to do the genetic ma manipulation, just, just historically because prokaryotes are much easier to genetically manipulate than human and um, mammalian systems. But now, with the advent of really a broad array of genome editing tools, I think we're in kind of in a golden age of synthetic biology in that we can put in larger our genomic payloads into various spots in the genome, do it precisely, um, and also be able to control the behavior of those genetic payloads over time as the stem cell differentiates um, or, you know, behaves in situ within the body. So these are, I think, really exciting possibilities that we're trying to develop in a number of different at least human systems is the focus of my lab, but certainly the field is much larger um, in, in working with mouse embryos, uh, a bunch of model organisms to really start to not only build up these structures, um, but also be able to kind of decode and dissect endogenous regulatory structures by one building simple genetic circuits and then seeing how they compare and contrast to what you see in vivo. Yeah, I mean, the, for me, the exciting thing about synthetic bio from like a, you know, armchair standpoint, 
I'm not really in it. It's just how pervasive the applications are. You can you can apply it to any system, any disease. Uh, and Arun will tell you, I have a bias to the blood. I had, I had a quick review, uh, look at a review of yours that you recently put out. It was focused on the manufacture and engineering of natural killer cells. Uh, and my bias aside, I think it's fair to say that harnessing of the immune cell toward treatment of cancer is among the most revolutionary medical advances of this era. And the returns, I think, in terms of like lives saved um, is set to expand dramatically as some of these more experimental therapies move into broad clinical practice. And we saw at the ISSCR meeting this year, virtual though it was, how academia and industry are both kind of incorporating all kinds of biological switches into cells. I mean, Blue Rock is a great example of using this kind of new CAR-T, but with the, the you know, synthetic bio incorporated. Can you explain how these controls might provide a finer level of control or potency in these quote unquote synthetic cell products? Yeah, I'd love to. I, I certainly have now a bias towards uh, blood cell lineages as well, hematopoietic systems. I, I think they're a really fun place to do work, um, mostly because you can take them out of the body and engineer them and then put them back in. And um, the culture systems and it really, you know, all of the pioneering work by stem cell biologists to develop culture systems to keep them, uh, you know, multipotent and undifferentiated ex vivo it's paying off in this field now because you're able to do um, a lot of manipulations without sacrificing potency. And uh, I, natural killer cells in that review certainly is a um, really a shout out to my graduate student, Kirtanas Shankar, who is really a second year PhD student who put that together. Um, but she really was inspired by work in the field, notably, I think, work by um, Dan Kaufman and others uh, in developing a number of different genomically engineered uh, cell products now that I think FATE is capitalizing on. And there, you know, I think one of the major technologies that enabled those sets of products is to uh, genomically edit induced pluripotent stem cells bank them, differentiate them, and then see how they function uh, in animal models, learn from that, and then come back and uh, re-engineer some new circuits. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about CRISPR, right? So it's no secret that this is the age of genome editing with the explosion of new technologies like CRISPR that have made altering the human genome cheap, easy, and accessible, right? And your lab is actually working on ways to make CRISPR even better, and in particular have used ribonuclear protein or RNP-based genome editors for really precise allele-specific genome editing. And I'm a big fan of RNP-based editing and actually use these in my own, own work to introduce and correct point mutations associated with congenital heart disease. You actually just published a nature communication study using RNP editors to correct disease phenotypes in vitro and in vivo. So tell us a little bit more about these RNP-based gene editing approaches and how they're making CRISPR even more accessible and improving these stem cell models of human disease. Happy to. Uh, RNPs are ribonuclear proteins that really can be made 
off the shelf. So you, what we do is we can order the guide RNA uh, from a commercial vendor, get it in our lab within a few days, and have uh, the Cas9 protein in in our freezer. Um, and then for every single edit that we want to do, it really is a matter of days um, in putting it into a particular stem cell culture. One of the advantages that my lab has um, been seeing in using RNPs is that it's a very transient type of perturbation within the cells. And the lifetime of the editor within the cell is um, dictated by how quickly the cell degrades that RNP that you delivered. And so it, it sticks around uh, for uh, much less time than what you would get by delivering it by mRNA or plasmid or lentivirus or any other viral vector. And that has been shown to minimize off-target events. And so in some of these applications that you mentioned in trying to um, correct mutations or do very precise genome editing in, in iPS cells, it's, it's quite nice to have kind of a hit and, hit and run approach by using RNPs because as soon as you nucleoaffect it and get it into the cell, it's really only a matter of hours before it's gone. But the change that it makes in the genome is permanent um, and presumably at the on-target site. So we've been um, playing with tethering a number of uh, temp donor templates to the RNP. So the donor template will encode what you want to uh, put into the genome. This is typically a separate DNA strand or single uh, stranded oligonucleotide. And we've, we done, what we've done is tether it to the RNP such that it's delivered in an all-in-one complex. Hmm. So some of the recent work that you mentioned that was published uh, late last year was doing gene correction on multiple alleles in an autosomal recessive case of Pompe disease. And this is uh, the challenge of precisely editing and correcting two point mutations that are not identical, they're compound heterozygous cases, so different mutations from the mom and the dad. And we were able to do this successfully, and we also were able to um, look at what the effects would be if you were to correct one um, allele versus the other, as well as both. And what we found in summary was that um, really all of those strategies can work if you correct one or the other um, or both. There is a um, modest but significant um, benefit to correcting both alleles in the same cell. And uh, this led us to the question of whether um, it would be advantageous to try to target both alleles for gene correction in a recessive case. Uh, within within a patient. Of course, this is difficult to do um, in the lab. Uh, certainly, there's very limited numbers of animal models that have these types of compound heterozygous mutations. And certainly, in this case of Pompe disease, there wasn't any that we found. So we ended up developing a computational model that could simulate this uh, as best as we could uh, tell from a, a number of different literature sources of doing somatic cell genome editing. 
And I think some, some you know, th- there's many different stories um, that came out of this. W- one interesting story to highlight is that really precision um, matters and how you dose uh, matters. So if if you're working with an imprecise editor and you target one allele, uh, you can end up destroying the recognition site for the next round uh, for the next round of editors that you're dosing in. And uh, if you're trying to hit um, a mature cell or a progenitor cell, timing uh, matters quite a bit. So that, that's all uh, summarized in that study. But I think one of the uh, exciting ideas that came out of that work was that you can think about expanding the number of targets that you're trying to edit in inside uh, a patient, you know, certainly for uh, the gene therapy industry that's so far been focused primarily on single um, targets within the genome, uh, I think they can start to uh, address uh, more complex disorders that may have multiple uh, genetic components that they would like to edit. Yeah, I, I really also liked, I mean, you, you talked about it a bit there, but I, I really appreciated the uh, the simulation element there, that you could simulate the therapeutic efficacy in silico and then you validated it. Because, you, I mean, the, the focus there was a, a human disease, right? The Pompeii. And we alluded to it earlier, right? You, or you did, that you can take the blood out of the, the body and engineer and put it back in. But in the case of an organ like the liver, it's not not the case. Um and for me, it's it seems like it's a it's a great unknown for the future of you know, you know gene engineering in vivo disease correction etc. Uh, and it's not a new problem. Delivery it's been a challenge since the concept of gene therapy was put forth initially. Uh, it seems like precision kind of cracked it with the precision, or collectively we've cracked it now that you're moving towards these multiple targets, which is, I think, as you said, very impressive. You can start to focus on these more complex disorders. Um, do you think that that or and other technologies put us on the cusp of surmounting the fundamental obstacles that have limited practical application of in vivo gene therapy? And if not, what's left? Like, what's the big, you know, the last thing to fall? Oh, there's plenty left. I mean, I, I think it's a really exciting time. There's tons of investment in genome editing and gene therapy. And um, I think the field is in some ways holding its breath to, uh, from a lot of the clinical trials that are underway. Um, because I think initial um, signs have been very positive and we're hoping that it's, you know, kind of durable effects. Um, but in some ways it's kind of impossible really to fully know with all the preclinical work that we do. Um, there's, as you mentioned, a big issue with uh, delivery and as well as immune response to both the um, the, the vector that you're delivering with, uh, the payload, as well as the genome edited product. Um, so th- these are all uh, questions that we're investigating kind of collectively in the field. One of these efforts is the um, NIH Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium that I'm um, fortunate to help lead at the moment. And they're half of the projects for from that effort, which is uh, on the order of about 100 labs, is is focused on delivery 
And so there's, there's all sorts of techniques. Um, there's, uh, you know, new viral vectors that have been evolved. There are nanoparticles that um, have been synthetically made. And there's also hybrid approaches that blend the two types of strategies. And um, they're being tested in, in many different tissues. And certainly some of these vectors and delivery strategies will be better suited for one tissue over another. And eventually the hope is that we'll have a very broad tool set um, and toolkit eventually from those delivery vectors combined with a number of new editors that are being um, developed in that consortium. So, you know, so far genome editing has really focused on the genome and, and inside the nucleus, but there's other targets inside the cell. There's the mitochondrial DNA, there's RNA, there's the epigenome. And in some ways, I think if, if we're able to deliver large, you know, mRNA payloads, protein payloads, and, and you know, DNA payloads, and encode various types of editors, we have an exciting prospect of not only changing the DNA sequence, but changing how the chromatin is packaged, how the transcriptome is um, um, expressed and translated, as well as how you know the mitochondria is is functioning. That's you know that's a kind of a dream in the field, but I think we're working that uh, working on that on those projects that one day could really hopefully accelerate a lot of translational applications. Yeah, it's such an exciting time to be on the translational side of genome editing. And it seems like every single week there's a new type of editor that's coming out, whether it's another Cas9 variant, prime editing, base editing. It's just, you know, there's a huge amount of technology and the toolkit is just ever expanding and rapidly expanding. And you've been at the forefront of developing and improving these technologies like CRISPR, but also back in the early IPS era, you were focused on understanding the IPSC reprogramming process, actually, during your postdoc at the Whitehead Institute under stem cell guru Rudy Anish, right? And back in 2009, you had a nature paper with the former podcast guest, actually, Dr. Uh, Jacob Hanna, where you showed that IPSC reprogramming is a stochastic process and it can actually be sped up under the right conditions. I like to think there's a life cycle for some of these new biotechnologies where over time their use becomes really commonplace and they just become another tool in the toolkit, kind of like CRISPR. Do you think that's where we are with iPSCs more than a decade later? Or do you think there's still room to improve the overall IPS reprogramming process? So tell us about that. We have, we have a number of projects that are building um, really uh, from some of those postdoctoral studies that you just mentioned. Uh, I think there's still quite a bit of heterogeneity in, in generating iPS cells. Um, and, you know, there's really fascinating studies coming out still every, every month or so on, on reprogramming. I, I think in some ways you're right in that some of the fundamental bottlenecks in using um, iPS cells in translational applications have been solved. So, um there are companies, billion-dollar companies, right, that are using and investing in iPS cells, and um, I think they're able to to generate new lines and maintain them and bank them um, sufficiently well to certainly spur on that type of investment. 
that said, um, I still think it's interesting, uh, a very interesting scientific question on why every cell doesn't become reprogrammed um, and what are the bottlenecks and the trajectories that these cells are taking as they uh, move, you know, from adult to pluripotent. I mean, in my in my kind of training, it's pretty fascinating to think that when I was doing my PhD work, reprogramming was not really an, um, a, a concept that was popularly thought to occur frequently at all. Certainly there was a few studies um, in some adult lineages, but doing an adult to embryonic um, transition was inconceivable. You know, my developmental biology professors would say, oh, that, that's really something that's artificial that would never, if, if you could even do it in a dish, it, you know, what would it mean biologically? How would you test it? And of course, you know, I think the reprogramming field um, took off in 2006 and, um, you know, won Nobel Prizes, et cetera. And it's, it's still a pretty young field. I mean, you, you mentioned life cycle. It's on the order of now, I guess, 15 years old. Um, and if you compare it to CRISPR, CRISPR, you, you would argue was probably about eight to nine years old now. So, um, some, if I don't, I haven't done the actual bibliometrics, people plot these trajectories. I think CRISPR in some ways probably has had a faster rise than IPS cells. Hmm. Um, so perhaps, you know, they're in similar places where there are tools that many labs can um, access and use. But on the grand scheme of things, if you think about an average graduate student training and that new tools get started and established within about eight to nine years, um, you know, I tell my students that they're going to have to evolve in their toolkits and technology and be able to keep at the forefront um, because Scientific careers are long and, you know, training is arguably five to six years in this field. So you got to keep up. Um, that's, that's one of the hard lessons. I mean, maybe not hard, but it's, you know, it's, it's a lesson I've taken uh, during my own training. Yes. Uh, I mean, I would argue, I mean, everything's accelerating, right? But it's still pretty early days. You said it's just 15 years ago. Seems like just an eye blink for me, especially as you mentioned, you know, my, I wouldn't say my mentor, he was very open-minded. All my mentors have been, but certainly plenty, plenty of his peers. Um, you know, my scientific grandfather, I should say is, uh, Dr. Gurdon. So I have a, a bit of a bias there, but the, okay. the, the point being is plenty of my, uh, my, my grad school mentors, peers would say, yeah, you can reprogram that, then that's called cancer, you know? So here we are. But um, the impact of iPS cells on science and medicine, it's already tangible, right? You said the Nobel Prize, there's been a lot of diseases that have been investigated, interrogated using the technology. But we've likely only seen a fraction of what's to come clinically, right? I think it's fair to say, uh, though, that the obstacles to using autologous iPS cells in personalized regenerative therapies maybe were underappreciated. When iPS cells first came out, it was like, hey, everybody's going to get their own heart made from their own skin. Um, do you think these therapies will make 
up a significant proportion of IPSL applications moving forward? I mean, like the personalized regenerative medicine approaches. Uh, do you think those are still alive uh, or are they going to be more fringe? Yeah, I, it's a really fascinating question. I think there's a lot of different viewpoints here. I mean, I think just relating back to the last uh, comment where we talked about how things are accelerating and tools are developing really quickly. At the same time, moving a cell-based product that's engineered into patients is still at least five to seven years. So, you know, in some ways that's frustratingly long, certainly for, for patients who see all of these advances and they're asking, when is it, you know, coming to my clinic? Um, I think there's a tons of really interesting um, models and approaches out there in the field um, that are exploring both autologous and allogeneic strategies. You know, I think about the uh, uh, iPSC retinal pigment epithelial cells that are in trials, and uh, certainly I am uh, most familiar with the work from Kapil Bharti at NEI and I think now with Columbia and the New York Stem Cell Foundation um, and kind of the heroic effort it took to try to get an IPS autologous product um, into trials. So I think the infrastructure that it takes, the organization and the manufacturing know-how to do that well is is significant, but you know there are efforts out there, and I think really the um, one of the ways in that we can evaluate the two autologous versus allogeneic strategies is to see how the immune response um, occurs in patients. Again, I think this is one of those places where yes, autologous, you know. Um, the products would likely have a, a better uh, profile in terms of immune response and perhaps engraftment if uh, if you go down that route. But of course, the expense and infrastructure is um, not scalable to the numbers of patients that ultimately are in need. And so the the other op approaches, the universal IPSL approaches, the off-the-shelf approaches. Um, are also being developed and and I think super interesting. In some ways, this is where the work in the CAR T field and um, you know the MK field is very illustrative. In that, you know, the business models and how you think about developing a product um, using allogeneic versus autologous, I think, is still an open question for many different application areas. Hmm. This is actually a, um, a question that we're addressing in a, a center that's on cell manufacturing technologies that's supported by the NSF that's um, been analyzing from kind of an operational standpoint um, what costs there are in switching between the two types of um, models, autologous versus allogeneic, you know, also after last year, thinking about the resiliency of these types of manufacturing approaches to pandemics, to supply chain issues. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, 
it's an interesting world out there in terms of applying and actually getting product out um, versus just a discovery that you do in, inside the lab. Yeah, you brought up the cost and that can still, even to this day, be a prohibitive thing for not only for the basic science folks who are hoping to adapt and use iPSCs in their everyday work, but certainly the the clinical translation, uh, translational potential of the technology. And so it's an issue, right? It's it's an ethical issue. And you're actually very aware of some of these bioethical issues that are associated with technologies like CRISPR and iPSCs. And in, in fact, it seems like you've actually got a bit of a passion for bioethics. You've published multiple commentaries in a variety of journals and topics such as uh, enhancing medical data access for patient donors and even building a global genome editing observatory that can oversee the governance of CRISPR across the world. Um, that second topic in particular, I think, is really interesting because we've already seen the birth of the first CRISPR-modified human babies. So, I mean, it seems like Pandora's box is already open. So how realistic do you think it would be to actually establish like an international body that can oversee and potentially regulate human genome editing, or is it more realistic to assume that the burden of that kind of regulation is going to fall to individual countries? So what do you think about that? Well, this is a, one of the biggest questions in the field. And um, yeah, I think part of the uh, efforts that I'm helping to lead in the observatory is to think about many different ways to frame that question. And uh, I think the way that you asked it, is it, is it even possible to have a regulatory framework is, um, is a question that the WHO's um, efforts have presumably answered as yes. And they're, I know, actively working on this question, probably will have a report out um, this year, if, um, if not in the coming months, where they've thought about it. And, um, you know, provided, I, I would say, a first draft of what such a what a framework would be. I think there's still quite a bit of um, hesitation in the field, a concern in the field of moving and even adopting such a framework. Um, there, there was a, a prominent commentary by many folks in the field um, a few years ago, asking for a moratorium on any type of human germline genome editing. Um, and so in, in my view, there's quite a bit of um, still question asking and framing that needs to occur such that we have kind of broad societal consensus to move in that direction. So some of the earliest summits that asked this question, you know, back in 2015, before the birth of um, the genome editing babies that you mentioned, really said that we shouldn't move forward unless we had that type of consensus. And I think, you know, in the wake of the 2018 scandal, I don't think we're closer to consensus than we were before that. And, and, um, I think those are kind of global projects in scope. It's, it's not necessarily something that I believe can be sufficiently handled at the national level, although there's certainly an important role for national regulatory authorities. There's an important role also for 
you know, institutions and individual PIs, how all of these come together, I think, in this field is totally um, uh, unclear. And some people would call this the Wild West and that who, whoever can kind of explore new territory and break new ground, they will be known for, you know, discovering and, and pioneering that field. I'm pretty sure, you know, scientists don't want this to become the Wild West. Um, so, you know, I think for me, I have, I've always thought that there's a, an important role for scientists to play, especially because they're at the bench and I believe they have, you know, practical experience on what's possible, where, where the technologies could go that should inform, um, how these frameworks are being developed. And so I don't think scientists themselves have the authority or really the right to establish what the rules are, but certainly they should be involved. And that's, you know, that's one reason why I'm involved. Yeah, CRISPR is really a twist because it's, I don't know that it's unique in this, but the way that the, the technology has accelerated in other, like take stem cells, as a comparison, embryonic stem cells, iPS cells either, it seemed like, you know, the idea, the potential was there, but like the tech didn't catch up. You know, we talk, we were talking about whether we should do things, but we really couldn't even do things yet. But now at the CRISPR, we can, and we really need to catch up on whether we should, and we're way behind. Um, I still like to think though, that the people who are capable of doing it have a lot more to, to lose than they have to gain. So it'll be um, tempered any kind of wild west thing, but who knows? Who knows? Uh, it's it's a long way from early days for me in my training. I I, I like you was trained uh, uh, right around or following the initial derivation of human embryonic stem cells by Jamie Thompson. Um, so Wisconsin feels like hallowed ground to me. I'm betting for you too, uh, and it's still a major force with PIs like yourself driving innovation. Also, though, on many fronts, Alta Charo leading the discussion on bioethics, and also there's the Y Cell Stem Cell Bank, which is led is led by uh, a former guest, Tanil Ludwig. Uh, hey, Tanil. Uh, but they provide a vital repository to researchers across the globe. Tell us what it's like running a lab at ground zero of a revolutionary innovation like uh, embryonic stem cells. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's, it's so much fun being part of this community. Um, so the Thompson Lab is actually on my floor in this Institute for Discovery. And, you know, I think of the building in part as um, responding to some of the bioethical demands on the field in that the building is uniquely um, developed and funded and its infrastructure is half public and half private mm. such that if if there is uh, new restrictions at the federal level you would have some sort of flexibility to not have to move at least out of the building you, you might be able to move you know from one side of the floor to the other um you know, I, I think, you know, that's not the entire reason why they, they built that facility, but um, I think it's in part built um, with that in mind. That said, um, you know, I think Wisconsin, in my mind, is a really interesting example of being able to push the boundaries of a scientific field responsibly. Um, and, 
you know, I think who's responsible, how they're responsible, these are all changing questions. Um, but there's a history there in Wisconsin that I am drawing upon as I think about how CRISPR is developing, how stem cells and CRISPR are coming together. And, um, you know, in some ways, I think there's a lot to learn from both the successes and perhaps the challenges that we faced in this stem cell world and how it maps on to what we're trying to do in the genome editing world. Yeah, it's an exciting time to be a stem cell biologist, whether it's a Wisconsin, California, New York, anywhere around the world, right? And then, like Dylan mentioned, you're working at hollowed ground. So that must be super fun to be right down the road, down, right down the hallway from Dr. Thompson. So thanks for joining us, Dr. Saha. And, you know, before we let you go, we're actually going to shift gears a little bit and ask you some science peripheral questions. These are questions that we like to ask so our guests can you know, know you a little bit better outside of the lab. If you were not a scientist, you know, first question, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? I, I think I'd work in government um, somehow related to collective action problems. You know, I've always been interested in how democracies work, uh, certainly coming from um Alabama, which has a different political culture um, than Wisconsin and, and the other um, states that I lived in, New York and California. On top of that, my family's from industry, another democracy, and I went to school for a period of time in England. These are all democracies, but they approach science very differently. And I think they see benefits and the role of science um, in different ways. So that that's one reason why I ended up doing some of the bioethics and policy work that we just talked about. But it's always been a kind of a longstanding interest. How do we actually function as a democracy in different societies? So I'd probably be somewhere in government trying to, uh, you know, help society out somehow. Dr. Saha running for Senate or maybe president one day uh, in the near future? I didn't, I didn't say <laughs> politics. I said government. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So next up, some rapid fire fill in the blanks. First off, when I'm not conducting research, I am blank. Playing with my two daughters. As the father of a new child, six-month-old, I think that's uh, the right answer. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it's, that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Second up, if I could have one superpower, it would be blank. It would be to go back in time. Yeah. My, my uh, daughter loves Back to the Future. I do too. And yeah, that was fun. Think of all the Either. discoveries you'd make. For sure. Yeah. Go back in time or freeze time. Yeah, I think that's a solid answer. And finally, I can't start the day without blank. A shower. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been, I've been uh, meaning to go and exercise more. Uh, the pandemic has messed this up, but certainly the shower is, is uh, important. You know, I'm kind of... Uh, right. I, I'm actually kind of the same way. And 
maybe part of it is having to do cell culture right after I get into lab. It's almost like I want to cleanse myself before <laughs> going into cell culture. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> well, if, if you've had issues with contamination and um, running to the you know cell culture hood after playing basketball or something else, yeah, um, that's not the that's not the reason why it, I've uh, probably. I developed that habit, but you know, it makes sense to me. Got to keep it clean guys. Got to keep it clean. I can't believe here I am with a couple boys out of Alabama talking about stem cells. This is, I mean, I'm never going to repeat this unless I have you on the show again here, Kashanu. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Arun, Kashanu, we'll uh, check in with you guys soon back in Bama. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter to suggest guests or by email uh, at info at stemcellpodcast.com. This was a really great show and a great week. You know, I'm constantly humbled by the developments in stem cell science. I would have said that we are never going to get through gastrulation and, you know, early organogenesis, ex vivo and mammalian embryos. And here we are, Arun. And in the same day, we get the other thing that I never thought would happen. So the joke's on me. Um, I guess I'm just going to shut up about my speculations moving forward. You guys, thanks for joining us for this episode. Tune in in a couple of weeks. We'll have a fresh one for you.